Good morning. Let me get set up here. Let's see here. Hey, is anybody as tired as I am? Like you all amaze me. One of the biggest blessings for me this weekend is just watch you all be married to each other and to watch you herd your kids. And I, f- I forgot how just physically exhausting it is to herd cats like that all day. So uh, well done. And uh, I promise you that when I'm driving 12 hours to get home, I will be praying that all of your kids fall asleep on the way home, and that you'll choose your uh, movie wisely to get them to do that. I want to encourage you to uh, be storytellers uh, to your children and to your parents. We've enjoyed telling each other stories and hearing each other's stories, and I'm telling you, it is a lost art. Storytelling is this, and uh, the story does not get told. My uh, parents are both gone, and I... Uh, so many times uh, wish that I could ask my mother, hey, what did it feel like the very first time you saw my dad? You know, what was your first date? What was the worst day of your married life? And uh, please tell your children those stories. And if you're here and you have children and your parents are still alive and their grandparents... I would like to ask you to give your parents grace and uh, let them be grandparents and talk about what that's like. Like I told you, uh, physically exhausting to raise four kids, I'd forgotten it. But now I get to experience, you know, uh, five little grandkids, but it's in the context of like one day, okay? And it's like I'm so exhausted and wiped out after that one day like you all would be after a month. But... um, my children allow me to be a great, a really good grandparent. And uh, just let me tell you, I need their help. I need their help. I had no idea how to be a parent. And all I knew was I did not want to do it the way that I was raised. And I saw what it was like to be a good grandparent. But uh, like for an example, uh, I sometimes babysit so, so that my daughter and her husband can go on a date I'll go over and babysit. And they're all, you know, they're millennials. They have all these rules and regulations. And <laughs> I don't give a shit about any of that. <laughs> so my grandkids are not allowed to have Diet Coke. I mean, God forbid real Coke, all right? So I go over there, and you know, I'm Mr. Reverend, Mr. Grandpa, Mr. Clean, and and, but a second the door closes, my granddaughter, uh, we have this thing. The door closes, boom. She says, Pappy. I go, yeah, are we going to drink Diet Coke? <laughs> and then my response is always, heck yeah. <laughs> One time I uh, went over there and they left and, and uh, I brought in a stepladder from the garage, put it up in the living room, and I had this parachute. It's a real parachute. And I turned the living room into a big top uh, circus. Okay, so we had the TV in the top. We had popcorn. We had real Coke. We put uh, sugar daddies in the popcorn. <laughs> Bedtime was at 7.30, and they were going to get home at 11.30, and about 11.21, I got them to bed, and the inside of that tent, it was like soaking with sweat, and it smelled like little kids, 
and it was there was confetti. Uh, I put whipped cream on my or uh, shaving cream on my face, and they threw cheese balls at me like a dart dartboard. <laughs> so uh, the kids come home and they go, "How to how to go?" You know, and I'm all clean. I've got my coat on, all ready to go. I go, "Oh, it was great." I go, "Love you. See ya." And they're the ones who have to clean up the big top circus. So, so please, uh, please give us uh, grace on all that. I told you uh, that my dad died right before I went to kindergarten and that he was beaten to death in jail. And all that's true. But I did not find out all that until I was an adult. And my mother, uh, I suppose it was a lie, she said that he had fallen down and that he had punctured a rib and that it, it uh, punctured his lung and that he bled to, to death, and that, that, that's, that's how they said that he died. Okay, um, I don't know when that movie Roots came out, in the 70s, Kunta uh, Kinte, you know, and it got me interested in my roots, and so I just started with my dad, and I'd, uh, in the summers, I'd been to places that he grew up in and stuff like that, but I got the autopsy report and stuff like that. And uh, there was no pictures, but there were these sketchings of how, I mean, it, uh, it looked like a flogging. And uh, he was drunk, and the police, the sheriffs were trying to get him to go from one cell to another. And I don't know if he was never belligerent, but they thought he was resisting, and they just started beating him. And they uh, cracked a rib, and it punctured his kidney. So uh, as a result of trying to find, find out all that, I went back to Tennessee, uh, right down the road from my grandmother's house, and I went to this general store. It's a country store. It's basically a roadside uh, stand under a roof. But you uh, open a screen door, and you walk in. The whole store is about three times the size of this stage. So there's a middle aisle that leads back to a wood stove, a potbelly stove where people would tell stories. Sometimes there would be a mandolin guy uh, playing. The place smelled like uh, wood smoke and coal smoke, and the floors were all wood, and then there were like two shelves on this side and two shelves on this one. Cashier was over here in the corner. So I walk in the door that day, and I'm, uh, I walk about 10 feet in the store, and I'm, I'm standing there like, like this, looking back at that potbelly stove, looking around. And uh, the guy behind the counter says, you're Ernie's boy. That's my dad's name. You're Ernie's boy. I had never met this guy in my entire life. And I, I turned around and I, I said, uh, yes, I am. I said, what on earth would make you say that? And he said, uh, the way you stand on one leg. He says, the way you got your thumbs in your pockets. How one shoulder shrugs to the right. And he said, when you smile, your eyes almost shut. He said, you are Ernie's boy. <laughs> you see, it was a case of unmistaken identity. In the garden on the night that Jesus was flogged, Peter was there. He was around the fire, and uh, he did not say anything. And uh, one of the people there said, 
you're one of those Jesus guys. And he said, no, no, you're wrong. And they just kept, you see, Jesus, uh, Peter had spent so much time with Jesus that it was just written all over him. It was a case of unmistaken identity. And I want to beg you on behalf of Christ, as parents and grandparents and as children, spend so much time with Jesus Christ in his word, in your prayers, and in your thoughts and your actions, that you become a case of unmistaken identity. That there would uh, be no doubt that you are a child of the Most High God. You are Jesus' kid. I think that uh, one of the trademarks of Jesus is his humbleness. He became nothing. Philippians 2. He was equal to God. And he equated equality with God as something that could not be grasped. And he emptied himself, even to the point of obedience. Obedience to the point of death on the cross. So humbleness and obedience are traits of an unmistaken identity with God. Today, I want to do a teaching from 2 Samuel chapter 6. I want to do a reflection from Luke chapter 7. And then uh, one last story that's absolutely not true, but it's a good story. <laughs> I think all the stories I've said, said this week are true. This is King David. King David. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. 30,000. When So this tells us right away that David did big things for the Lord. And now he's doing it again. 30,000 people he gathered. And the idea was this. David is in Jerusalem. He's the king. And the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the very presence of God, is out of town. I think it's nine miles. I'm not sure about that. And so David gathered 30,000 people for a big parade to go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it home into the house of Jerusalem. When was the last time you tried something big for Jesus Christ? Now David's doing it again. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Beljudah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Now the best image of the ark of the covenant is Raiders of the Lost Ark. It looks like a casket with two golden eagles stretched, uh, stretched over it. And uh, uh, it, it was... It was a visible image of the invisible God. That's Jesus. The ark is a precursor to Jesus Christ. Noah's ark is a visible image of the invisible God. It's like you could not escape death without the ark of Noah. The ark of the covenant represented the presence of God, the holiness of God, and man is sinful, if you touched the ark, 
you died. Because the wage of sin is death. Uh, the ark was a wonderful and scary thing to be around, as you all saw in the movie. <laughs> when was the last time you let your face get melted for Jesus Christ? <laughs> and they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Now, friends, you could read that and think, wow, this is a yippy-skippy parade. This is like Macy's Thanksgiving. This is going to be great. It says that they might bring the ark home. So, man, they had, they had doubt. And they committed a huge compromise. It says that they put the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. Uh, there's, remember the leper? There's one thing you do not do with a leper. You, you, don't, you don't touch it. One of the things you did not do with the Ark is touch it. And you did not put it on a cart. God had even made provision so that that wouldn't happen to anybody. In the building of the ark, they put six big eye bolts on the, ca on the casket-looking thing. And they would run poles through those eye bolts. And then six men would carry it on their shoulders so that nobody had to touch the ark. But it was nine miles. It would be hard to be in the presence of God like that for nine miles. And so they compromised. Uz and Ahio, they were sons of Abinadad. I think he was like the high priest. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Like David is dressed up like a king, and it is a huge uh, uh, parade. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. So a threshing floor, uh, it, it's all bumpy, and it, there's this flat place. The oxen goes up on uh, to the threshing floor, and the, the oxen slips. Two oxen, there's, you know, that uh, thing that goes, the yoke. Okay, the yoke goes like this. Okay, the stirrup on the wagon goes like this. The wagon goes like this. The ark goes like this. And Uzzah reaches up to catch it. You see, they chose the easy way. The threshing floor was a shortcut. They chose the easy way instead of the right way. Does that sound like anybody you know? And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his reverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Woo! That's a prayed buster right there. All this music, all this dancing, and all of a sudden everybody is looking at a little pile of smoke that used to be Uzzah. David became angry. 
of the Lord against Uzzah, and God struck him down, and he died. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Para-Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. You know, it was a, uh, a great idea that went so bad. He said, how can the presence of God be in my home? And he chased after it. But he took shortcuts. And he came up short and people died. So David became afraid of the presence of God instead of wanting it to be uh, close. Does that sound like anybody you know? This is my favorite part of the story here. This is where my kind of people come in. He left it on the side at the house of Obededom, the guitar, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obededom for three months. And the Lord blessed Obededom and all his household. Now, I'm sure it's not exactly like this, but in my part of the country, you see pickup trucks up on blocks in front yards. <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. Uzzah died, and they say, hey, we don't know what to do, but we are not going to touch that thing. And they left it right there in Obadidim's front yard. He maybe had a double-wide trailer at the best. Okay, and so the ark just sits there, up on blocks in the front yard. And Obadidim... You know, he's got his little uh, John Deere hat on and his bibs, and he's walking around that ark looking at it, and he doesn't know anything about it, but he knows he ain't going to touch it. And then it says that the house of Obadidim is blessed. I mean, his sheep started, like, breeding. And it's like his, his daughters got, like, better looking and stuff. And it's like uh, no one could believe it. He was the talk of the town. And it was told to David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obadidim. And all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obadidim into the city of David with gladness. But this time he did it different. And so it was when the bearers of the ark of the, had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. So imagine nine miles there walking. Every six steps, they stop, and they sacrifice an ox and a fatted cow. Okay, in Leviticus, what was called for was an ox every seven steps. That's what the New Testament calls above reproach. If God's word calls for seven steps and an ox... Let's go six and do an ox and a fatted calf. My daughters went to a Christian school, and I was so rebellious. They had this dress code, and there was a, a dress Nazi at the front door. And my daughters would have these straps on their dresses, right? And, uh, of course, everybody, they want to, put, you know, can I get by the dress Nazi? Okay, and I think it was three quarters of an inch or something. I don't know. Maybe it was an inch. Okay, but, uh, but all of us, we think, okay, let's, let's try a half inch today. Let's try three quarters. And I would teach my daughters, you know what above reproach says? That when you walk past that dress Nazi, 
that she just goes, oh, they're good. There's not even a hint, not even a hint of unmistaken identity. So that was an aside, I guess. (laughs) And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David took off his kingly clothes. A linen ephod uh, priest would pretty much sleep naked, and the first thing that they put on in the morning was a linen ephod. Now, I, I don't know if that's kind of like an a underuse or, or like this linen, but I mean, it was nothing. David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might in just a linen ephod. I mean, people don't see presidents in linen ephods. I mean, uh, Putin might be the exception. Like he, okay, but I mean, you know what? It's like, what a shock to see the king gyrating in just a linen ephod. So all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark. They were shouting and sound of the trumpet. And it happened as the the Lord, the ark of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael the daughter of Saul, David's wife, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched it. And the Lord, David offered up offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord God of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each. Then all the people departed each to his house. But when David returned to bless his own household, Michael said, My, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself in the eyes of the handmaids as one one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Okay, now listen to this right here. David says to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me, your father, and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. Here's the next one. And I will be even more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in his own eyes, in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Every day, you all have got the opportunity to humble yourself before the Lord. Or distinguish yourself among men. If any of you are business owners. If any of you are ranked in the top ten of real estate. All over the United States. Stories like that. That should be written across your wall. Today I will humble myself before the Lord. Before I distinguish myself among men. You have got to get at his feet. 
Remember the first night I said that so much happened at the feet of Jesus. Uh, The adulterous woman, uh, the leper, the woman who is hemorrhaging for 12 years, the Gerasene demoniac, Jairus, whose daughter uh, was dying. It says, and they came before him and they threw themselves before his feet. In Luke chapter 7, is my greatest biblical hero. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. A woman who was a sinner. She was a prostitute. What I love about this woman is that she not only went to Jesus, she brought something. She didn't go to get anything. She went to Jesus and she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. I'm told that uh, it would take a prostitute a year of being on her back to get an alabaster vial of perfume. Uh, She was a sinner. Uh, Just like me. And standing behind him, and then at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Wow, if this man was a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. What's so wild, the Pharisee, Pharisees were like the Sunday school teachers. They were like the preachers. They were like the TV evangelists. They were... They, they were the most spiritual people around. And he missed it completely. He's in the same room with a woman of the night. And it's like they're, they're all in fit camp. And they don't even know it. Everybody's the same. But half, most of the sinners in the room, they just were trying to distinguish themselves before men. And the, the prostitute was trying to humble herself before Jesus. In another account, it says that she broke the bottle. She poured the whole bottle out onto Jesus' feet. And Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them. Which one of them uh, will love him more? I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He said, you have judged correctly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? He turns to Simon and said, do you see this woman? The woman was right there and nobody saw her. They just saw the sin instead of the woman. And what's wild is when God looks at you, he chooses to see the blood of the lamb instead of your sin. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she since the time I have come in have not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. She poured out the whole bottle. A year's worth of alabaster. I think, how might have, if I had the opportunity to anoint Jesus' feet, how would I have done it? I would have probably, you know, done it like this. Uh, she's my hero because she dumped the whole load. I say that to you, it's such an idealistic idea. Would you please go home and dump the whole bottle? Even if the world uh, like, sees it as wasteful. You know, being a good parent, is, uh, you are so misunderstood. It doesn't matter what the rest of the room thinks. You pour out the whole bottle on your wife and your husband and your children. Above reproach. I learned uh, humbleness and childlike belief uh, from my children. And uh, the last charge I want to uh, give to you as you go home is if you want to be mature in Christ, then become and stay childlike. The more seminary I have a Master of Arts in theology, the more I learn about God, uh, the less I know. That's why we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's all you need to know. One time when uh, in Indiana there was this big snowstorm and everybody was freaking out. So everybody was going to the grocery store to get supplies, right? So my uh, whole family, wife and four kids, we went to the store to get, you know, everybody's getting bread and milk and water. But I went there for staples, chips, Coke, stuff like that. And uh, while my wife was doing all the work, I had Melissa, the little roof jumper, I put her in a cart, okay? And it's like a, uh, it wasn't a Kroger, but it was just a generic grocery store. And I'm pushing her up and down the aisles of the grocery store. Like, like one, two, three, there was, I think, eight or nine aisles. And the goal was to get her through the whole store before everybody else did the work. So I set her up in the cart, and, and I would run as fast as I could, and I would jump up on the bar. And she was like... The lady in Titanic, okay, standing up in this car. And we, you know, we would go up aisle one, then I would make the NASCAR sound. And then, boom, up aisle two. So we did that. But what's so wild is anytime we would, like, come across anybody or get close to them, we would stop. And then 
we would act all mature. I would say, oh, look, Melissa, the price of peas has gone up this week. And she would say, oh, no, Daddy, that just won't do. And then when no one was looking, we'd rip up the aisle. Well, we screeched around the corner and entered into aisle seven. And there, without warning, is a man in a wheelchair with no legs. He uh, looked like an army veteran, and he was reaching on the top shelf to get ketchup. And so me, being the mature Christian that I am, I tipped my hat, and I helped him get his ketchup. Melissa had gotten out of the cart. She'd never seen a guy with no legs, and she was sort of hiding behind my legs. I wished him a good, good day, and then uh, Melissa and I walked uh, to the checkout. I forgot all about the guy with no legs. Later that night, Melissa asked me to pray for the man with no legs that we saw in the store that day. And me, being the mature Christian that I am, I prayed that the Lord would bless him and keep him. And his mercy and grace and abundance would shine upon him all the days of his life. That he would experience no pain. And that his family uh, would be uh, happy and healthy and fulfilled. And then Melissa prayed for legs. She's got that right. If you are going to pray for legs, you had better go to the God of the universe. And I don't even go to him for legs anymore. Why is it that a room full of people like us, when we go to Kroger's and we get to aisle seven, uh, we are looking for a dude with no legs? Why is it that when we go to aisle seven, we're in the ketchup aisle? And our children expect to go there and see a man dancing in the ketchup aisle. Become childlike. Stay childlike. Okay. I got one more story for you. And it is not true. <laughs> but man, it is one heck of a story. I think every story I told you this week is tr was true, but not this one. A long time ago, uh, back in the time of World War I, there was a famous artist. He lived in a remote cabin up in the mountains of Switzerland. And uh, he, what was wild about him, he was a famous artist before he died. Most artists, their stuff isn't worth anything until they die. But this guy was a master. Uh, a masterful oil painting artist. Everybody wanted to buy this guy's stuff. He lived there with his only son. And his son went off to war. And the artist kept painting, kept painting. One day a knock comes to the door and there are two soldiers there with a little shoebox with the news that his only son had been killed in battle. And the artist was devastated. He put the shoebox up on the mantle. He didn't even open it. And he became a complete recluse. And he never painted another oil pa painting as long as he lived. It was 
supposed to be like two years later, he got the courage to open up the shoebox. And then there were little trinkets and souvenirs from different countries. There was a couple little uh, citations and medals. But at the very bottom of the shoebox was a piece of paper folded in half. And the artist opened it up, and it was a picture of his son, uh, drawn uh, crudely and roughly, and not even that skillfully, in charcoal. And it was a self-portrait. The son... <sighs> you weren't supposed to do that till later. No. <laughs> the son, uh, in the artist's mind, you know, had been in a foxhole, and he reached up and grabbed a piece of coal and just sketched an image of his face. Well, it became the artist's prized possession. He put it in a frame. He put it up on the mantle of the fireplace. And he cleared the fireplace of masterpiece oil paintings. So that the sun would be in the most prominent position in the house. Well, the artist died. And the art world came to life. Because there was going to be a big, big auction. In a room just like this, everybody's got their little paddles. And man, they are ready to spend millions and millions and millions on hundreds and hundreds of masterpiece oil paintings. So the auctioneer gets up, he quiets the crowd, he, uh, he takes his gavel and he says, let the auction begin. And the curtain opens up. And there is just one painting on an easel, the picture of the sun. And people freaked out. They started to boo. They go, hey, that's not what we came for. Show us the good stuff. And the auctioneer said, no, the artist made it perfectly clear that the picture of the sun goes first. But nobody would bid. Finally, in an awkward situation, a friend of the artist, he was a pauper on the back row. He waves his arms and he says, I'll, I'll give $3.81. And, and it's everything I have. The auctioneer said, $3.81 once, twice, sold to the man in the back for $3.81. And the man began started to walk forward, the second curtain opened up and there were hundreds of oil paintings and everybody freaked out. The guy put the uh, picture of the sun under his arm and he started to, to walk out the side and people began to even stand up and shout like, what's going to be sold first? And the auctioneer took his hammer and he said, the auction is closed. And people freaked out and he calmed them down and he said, no, and the artist, he made it perfectly clear. He who takes the sun takes it all. 1 John 5.12 He who has the sun has life. He who has not the sun has not life. Uh, let's pray. Ooh, Lord, I thank you so much for this weekend. That was so much fun. And it breathed such life into me. And I lift these uh, people up before you. I pray that you'd bring them home safely and that they could finish this day strong. And Lord, I pray this benediction over them. 
May the Lord bless and keep you. May his face shine upon you all the days of your life. May you experience his tender mercies and abundance and joy and love. And may he give you legs. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said.